The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. Persistent and Nasty podcast has teamed up with We Edition to offer our listeners 25% off monthly subscription. Head over to We Edition and type in NASTY, all capital letters, 25 at checkout. I have said it before, I will say it again. We Edition really are the future of casting. And also you can make money while being a member on the site. You can um, be a scene partner for people and you can help with accents. You can just generally help each other out. And it's a really important thing for us to do especially during these times and just a lovely way to have community our other offer for our listeners is still with backstage backstage are offering our actors 12 months free subscription you heard that right 12 months free if you follow the link in the description box for casting directors you can post free castings when you type in persistent and nasty at checkout Well, hello, you lovely lot. How are you all doing? Welcome to another episode of Persistent and Nasty Podcast. Today, all three of us are together and it's lovely. And we got to speak to the incredible Rebecca O'Brien, film producer. Rebecca's career um, spans everything from the Edinburgh Film Festival to being the producer on Mr Bean um, to her work with 16 films, uh, Ken Loach and Paul Laverty. It is a wonderful episode um, and I can't wait for you to hear it. I'm just going to give you a little uh, suggestion. Listen out to a very similar incident that happened to Rebecca that Georgie also mentioned happened to her last week. Hmm. Anyway, as always, you can follow us on all social media. Twitter. Do you notice how every time I hesitate because we're not persistent and nasty on Twitter? So, Twitter. I did it again. (laughs) Twitter, Persistent Nasty. Instagram, Persistent and Nasty. Facebook, Persistent and Nasty. And if you want to send us a wee email, we are persistentandnasty at gmail.com. Another fabulous episode, everybody. So as I always say, get a wee cup of tea, sit back, relax and enjoy. (laughs) Right. Isn't that what we want to talk about kittens. <laughs> little, little kittens. Have they all got homes to go to? Are you going to keep any of them? I think no. I'm not going to keep any. I don't think. Um, partly because I've actually got a job that I'm going to be doing in October, so I think it would be a bit much to take on a new kitten. But um, uh, they've all, they've pretty much all got homes to go to, Have which they? is good. No. Oh, if I've got a spare, if I've got a spare black one, I'll let you know. Yeah, if you've got a spare black cat. I mean, I'm honestly, I'm not a huge cat person. I'm a dog person, but the only cat that I would have is a black cat. Yeah. Love black cats. I just think well, they're Dorothy, she's... the mum, is a black cat. She's yeah. a beauty, an absolute beauty. She's really, but she's she she um she sachets rather than walks. <laughs> uh-huh. I love it. 
<laughs> who doesn't want a sashi rather than walk I mean I know yeah. I do right? <laughs> I totally do I want a sashi all the time um Rebecca thank you so much for joining us today um I guess the first thing we probably want to do is um if you just want to give the listeners a little bit of your potted history and then we'll kind of go from there okay so um I started working in film way a long, long, long time ago, back in the early 80s. Um, and in fact, before that, in the late 70s, I worked uh, at the Edinburgh Film Festival. That was my first job in film. Uh, when Linda Miles was in charge, and I begged her three years running to employ me, and eventually she relented. And that was really my first taste into the of, of the film industry. And... and uh, I had such a brilliant time working with her um, and we were bringing filmmakers from all around the world to Edinburgh and doing great retrospectives and I met a lot of people who I still know in the industry then. Um, so that and, and then getting to watch lots of new films and it was a brilliant experience and it was a brilliant festival to be part of. So that sort of that was sort of got me hooked and then after leaving uni, I, I spent, I did a, uh, well, I did a couple of years working at Riverside Studios, which was a theatre, but it's an art centre in London, where I got to see lots of different sorts of arts and, and got to be involved with theatre and, but I think... I think the film thing still kept on bugging me. Oh, look, there's somebody else. Misha has arrived. Hi, Misha. I'm in with Elaine's name. So um, I, worked in the, I worked in the art centre, in the arts, as a sort of programming assistant for a couple of years. And then I left. I left that because the problem with working in the theatre was that you never got out. And I think I left and I went and did a one-week film production course and that was my epiphany, really. That was the moment that uh, I thought, I've got to do film. Because film production, I, I'd, never, I'd never really found out what it was I could do in film until that moment. I didn't really understand that there was such a thing as production that you could do. So um, that was a great revelation to me. And, and it, as I'm an organiser and come from an organising family, um, it seemed to me that production was the right thing to do. So I worked, I worked for the people who did that course, actually. I went on and worked with them for a few months. And then I, then I got a job working on a low-budget feature film for the BFI um, with a couple of filmmakers called Peter Wallen and Laura Mulvey. And um, the feminists among you may well have heard of Laura. Um, and uh, they were doing a very alternative film, and and I got to do the sort of I was the production manager on it. And then after that, I did a, I did, I got, I got my sort of apprenticeship job, which was a, which was commission number three at Channel Four, which was a multicultural kids TV series magazine program, which Michael Rosen was involved in. And I did that for two years and we were filming. It was a sort of, we were working with real kids, um, doing lots of different 
documentary stuff, working all over the country with different people from different cultures. And there was sort of comedy and games and, and serious stuff as well. And that was basically my apprenticeship. And I did two years of that. And, um, and then I got into production as a freelance um, and I worked my way up production managing. Uh, it was the early days of Channel 4, so there were Film 4 jobs were around and I, I got to be a... There were, the, 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 the key for me was that there weren't many freelance young people at the time um, and, there were, and there wasn't a sort of film infrastructure like there is now. So it was a brilliant time to start because you got promoted every job you did, really. <laughs> so there was nobody else to do it. So I was... Uh, um, I worked as a production manager and I worked as a location manager. I worked on things like uh, My Beautiful Laundrette. Um, I worked on all women projects. I worked on Yay. all sorts of just interesting things. And I, I basically productioned my way up the ladder. And, and so by the late 80s, I was asked by funnily enough, by Peter Wallen, uh, if I would produce a film that he was doing without Laura. And that was a film called Friendship's Death, which starred Tilda Swinton in her probably second role ever. And um, she, she plays an alien, which is not unexpected for Tilda. <laughs> and uh, She is otherworldly, that is for yeah. sure, isn't she? Yeah. No, it was a beautiful story. It was set in Amman in Jordan during Black September. It was a sort of political intrigue story. And um, it's basically a conversation between her and a British journalist who's played by Bill Patterson. And the two of them have these, they, they found themselves under lockdown <laughs> in this hotel, a curfewed. And there's a series of conversations between them. And you gradually understand and you gradually believe that she is an alien and that she's arrived in the wrong place. And so there's much sort of discussion about why that's the case. And in the end, she identifies with the Palestinians because she's got no home and she has no hope. And anyway, the film has just been chosen. That film, Friendship's Debt, Death has just been chosen to be a Cannes Film Festival classic this year. And it's going to be shown in Lyon because that's where the Cannes classics are going to be shown, but it's going to be shown in Lyon this October. And uh, so it's, it's very nice to be old enough to have a film which is considered a, a Cannes a classic. classic. <laughs> and that was the first film I produced. And, I, after that, I worked, I'd worked quite a lot with um, working title. I worked on, obviously I worked on My Beautiful Laundrette as location manager. I worked on another film with them as location manager. And I produced their first, because I'd already produced Friendship's Death. They asked me if I would produce a TV series for them, um, which was a big fat beach book by Maeve Binchy called Echoes. Oh yeah, uh, uh -huh, yeah. So I went off to Ireland and, and it was a, I had a, a, a woman director, woman writer. Um, it was a very largely female central team. 
and we and we met we we met up with Maeve Binchy, who was like a, the Queen of Ireland at the time, <laughs> and we went to a, a wonderful little seaside town for the summer, and we made echoes, which was which was a wonderful experience, and um, because of that, I became working titles Irish expert because I done something there and they were doing a film with Ken Loach in Ireland and so I got to be the person who was to work with Ken and actually that film never got made it was a film called Fools of Fortune it never got made by us it got made later by others um, but it put me and Ken together and when when basically it fell apart. Ken was trying to turn a romantic novel into The Wind That Shakes the Barley and it wasn't going to work for working titles. So we, about four weeks away from shooting, we, we got packed off. So, but I really enjoyed working with Ken. I really was interested in the way he was working, shooting in sequence and he just threw all my ideas about production upside down and um, and had some very interesting ideas so he asked if I was be interested would be interested in in, in um, getting another script that he had off the ground and and I said of course and it took us about two or three years but we did eventually make what became uh, Hidden Agenda, which was a political thriller set in Northern Ireland. Um, and it was the first film that Ken had made for some time. And uh, it was very difficult to make because the troubles were still going on in the Northern mm. Ireland. And for one reason or another, we weren't allowed to shoot there in we, we, they asked us, the authorities didn't want, the, the completion guarantor didn't want us to shoot there until we'd shot all the main scenes. They didn't want our actors to get kidnapped, okay. wow. which was absurd. Um, but we shoot in sequence, so it was quite tricky because um, the, the one of the main actors gets killed in the first five minutes of the film. And... Uh, so what we ended up doing was we shot the we shot the we shot rehearsals in inverted okay. commas and we shot camera tests in inverted commas and managed to shoot the first five minutes of the film during pre-production. So and and we shot much of the rest in the UK and then we went back at the end to Belfast where we shot the rest of the film and and um, and reshot certain scenes. So we. We managed to get through this film and um, and survived and 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 enjoyed it a lot and decided it would be a good idea to work together again. But by that time, I was pregnant with my child Jack, and um, so Ken and I fell out of sequence for a while. And then we, um, but we we really enjoyed working together. So we sort of vowed that we would. And the next thing we did was a. Uh, was a the first co-production that I did with European co-production, which I did in Spain, which was a film about the Spanish Civil War called Land and Freedom. And that was an extraordinary experience. And it was a bit like going to war, really. But mm -hmm. And it was a, 
a Spanish, German, British co-production and we went out to Spain and we cast an international cast and we basically went to war for a few weeks. It was just amazing. Um, it's a very, to this day, in a way, for me, it's probably the most important film I made. It's a very special film. Um, so I did that and that sort of sealed my working with Ken and, and we've worked together ever since. I mean, I, I've, I, have, I have done a few sort of dogleg things. Like I, 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 the, the next film Ken did was a film I hadn't developed and it was set in Nicaragua and it, it was uh, Sally Hibbin produced it. So I d didn't get involved in that. And I had to go and earn some money. So I went and did Mr. Bean for working title as my first uh, foray to the United States. And um, how was that after working with Ken? <laughs> well, it was sort of, it was okay. It was sort of weird because it was just diametrically opposed, but it, yeah. <laughs> it, sort of, it sort of consolidated the fact that I could sort of put my hand to most things. And, mm. but my role on that was sort of, I mean, I was the co-producer, I was the producer for hire really. And my job was to keep it, being a British film, really, and in Hollywood, and my job—I mean, I, the, it was the most terrifying interview I think I've ever done. The, the interviewers were Rowan Atkinson, Richard Curtis, who'd written it, Tim Bevan from Working Title, um, and um, Mel Smith, who was the director. And uh, that they—I had to get past them to be able to do it, which was sort of weird. I mean, I wasn't a huge Mr. Bean fan, I have to say. Um, I mean, he's really, really annoying as a character. But it was, but it was, it was great to work with Mel. Mel was a terrific guy. Sadly, we've lost him, but yeah. he was a really great director. And what, what I thought made him great was the fact that he, working with Rowan, who's quite a serious fellow, um, I mean, comedy is a very serious thing to do. And the thing I loved about working with, with Mel was that even on the 17th take, when Rowan is trying to do something which has got to be very funny, Mel would roar with laughter after every take. And that was lovely because it was, you know, everybody else was losing the will to live, but he <laughs> still laugh at Rowan. And... And, and that made a huge difference. It's mm. just, it just does. It's just like, if you do comedy, somebody's got to laugh, even if it's not very funny, because that gives the energy to do it again. Yeah. So, it's a good director, isn't yeah. it? As you say, it's a really good director. Yeah. Knows, and obviously being a performer as well, he would... Yeah. Yeah. So you did Mr Bean and then... And then I, and then ev then most of the stuff then, I mean, and then I just did another sort of 15, 16 films with Ken. <laughs> and uh, we, we, uh, we'd started out working with a filmmakers cooperative um, called Parallax Pictures. Um, but by the end of the nineties, we were sort of just the only, we were sort of more or less doing most of the producing ourselves and, and it made sense. We were we were just making films ourselves, so it made sense for us to to, to leave and 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 have our own company. So we we formed our our company, which is called Sixteen Films, 
um, in the early 2000s. And we've been, it's been sort of happy ever after since then. We've, we've been busy making a lot of films and, and we, we just sort of got on a roll. And I think for filmmakers, that's a key thing. If you can, if you can find a, if you can find a team that you're happy with and, and keep working with those key people, so we, we joined up with Paul Laverty, who had written Carla's song. And we actually had, he was in Land and Freedom as an actor. And so we, we, we hooked up with Paul and Paul has written most of the films that we've done. There's a couple that we did with other, other writers, but the, the, the core team is me, Ken and Paul. And we, we've basically stuck together and, and worked on all these different projects together. And that's been the secret of the success is the fact that we've, you know, we've stuck together and, and, and when you're working with regular friends and it, it makes it fun. And, and it, mean, it means that there are lots of conversations you don't have to have because you already know a lot about each other and how you work. So um, it's been a real pleasure working with them and, funny and fun and um i think it's meant that our careers have probably gone on much longer than they probably should have <laughs> i don't think so i don't think so <laughs> at all but, i mean we you know you know every every project is unique and different and and has different challenges and uh and you never know where they might go. You never know whether a film is going to be successful or not. I mean, you've got to sort of put your heart and soul and love every film as well. You've got to uh, really put energy into everything that you do. Otherwise, you know, you, you've got to believe in it. And sometimes you're lucky and it, and it you know, it all comes together. So something like I, Daniel Blake, for instance, was like the perfect storm because everything went right on that project. Um, other films, you know, you, you, you love them to death, but they don't really succeed. But, but, we've, but we, because we've done enough and because we work very much with the same fi funding people and the same, a lot of the same fantastic crew, um, over the years, you, you get a momentum and you, you sort of make it work together. Yeah, it's really important, that connection, isn't it? That working mm. ethos as well of how you yeah. work with someone. Um, yeah, uh, I'm just like, we're, I'm a bit like, oh, so much information and I love it. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, I've got, I've got oh, like, a verbal diarrhea. I just need to <laughs> deal with it. I'm the same. I'm listening here just like, wow, it's just, it, it's so exciting having um, such a kind of long, it's exactly as you've said, like because you had your team together and you've had this whole career, it must be amazing to look back on. You must look at all the films and think, oh, how do we do, do them all? <laughs> I, t I think I tend to look to the future more than I do. Do you? I don't dwell in the past that much. I mean, I, I think, you know, and I think, look back, I think about individual films that they're, 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 they're a bit like children. You can't, you don't have a, have a special one really. I mean, although there are ones which I, I obviously identify with a bit more, but every film has its own stories and it has its own 
atmosphere, like you carry the atmosphere of that film with you. When you think of that film or you see that film, not that I see them very often, you, you think, ah, oh, yes, I remember I'm behind that particular bush or that, or that particular gravestone or that's where I am, I'm hiding, I'm on the walkie-talkie or whatever. Or you, you remember a particular hassle that you had with some actor's agent or you, or you rem remember sort of the atmosphere of making the film it makes it special when somebody asks me about a particular film i i will have a ah uh, yes that was that's what happened then <laughs> what did you do uni rebecca i did i didn't really know what to do actually but i i'm a bit of a jill of all trades so i um i studied geography and economics uh locations and budgets <laughs> very so, useful for a producer yeah I mean actually very good for a producer because you you know they're very broad subjects and you 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 sort of and in any case in a way it doesn't matter what you do at university it's it's like you learn how to research you learn how to apply yourself in different ways and I think and actually the most important thing I did at uni was I was editor of the college magazine and and that was the thing that I mainly did. You know, I, I obviously did my lectures and turned up to a few things. But I was spent a, spent a lot of time editing the college magazine and that was great fun. And I learned a lot of skills actually doing that because I do a lot of my own, pub, I do a lot of the publicity work on the films myself. And I've had, you know, when I was working at Riverside Studios, I worked in the publicity department there and I tend to be very much involved in the selling of the films. You know, my role as producer is, and I think it's probably the role of most producers, is one of your, you know, you're your, your sort of the overseer of the whole thing. You're, you're involved in the sort of macro side of film of of the making of the film so whereas the director's involved in the sort of finite detail as producer uh, my role is very much there are two things I might say one one is that I'm like, I, I'm like the first second opinion of as, as as we go through the film and we work with different departments so at the beginning you're working with the writer and then you're working with casting director or the location manager finding places and I will work, I will go in at each sort of crucial stage and be around for the director to discuss those elements with them. And so you're, you're sort of, apart from obviously raising the money and spending the money, which is what people expect of producers, you're also there as that sounding board for the ideas for the film. So that's, that's my role. And, and it goes on through the shoot and troubleshooting and, also very much involved in the marketing at the point once of course because the shoot's all going perfectly well of course and then so <laughs> um you know you hope it is and and um but i will be very much involved in bringing in outsiders to tell them the story of what's going on and preparing the press and all that so that's a that's a marketing bit and then in the post-production, I'll be there when we're doing the final mix and we're, we're there when we're 
done the first cut and there when we've we do the music and they're very much to sell the thing at the end and to sort of work with the marketing people and choose what images should represent the film all of that side of it is is what I'd be involved in all the way through to the archive so it's like I'm there as the first audience at mm -hmm. each stage of the film and and as I say yeah people people tend to think that producers are just there to to raise the money and and supervise the spending, but it's a lot more than that. There's a really creative role that you play being part of the conversation all the way through. Yeah. And it's having that awareness of all the roles as well, isn't it? Because you need to be like overseeing it so that everything's happening and you need to ha understand each of those elements with the strings. Yeah. Well, I think that's something you sort of learn as you um, go, I mean, doing working my way up through production and working as a location manager where you're as a location manager it's very good training to be a producer because you're at the interface between the public and the film and that's what you are as a producer as well but just on a sort of more senior level but and and as a location manager you are explaining what the film is to people you're saying how it's going to happen what the trouble it's going to be and the, the upset it'll cause and all the rest of it and so you're you're sort of, you're playing a junior producer role there as a location manager, you're representing the film. And what you're doing as a producer is representing the film. And you you know, when you go to a film festival like Cannes, for instance, you are in charge of, rep of the representation of the film. You are uh, out there promoting it or whatever. But by promotion, I mean, you know, you need to have a deep knowledge of what it is you're talking about. Um, and you're also, you're also supporting the people who are like the new actors or the old actors or the, and the writer and director, you are basically helping them represent the film as well. You're giving them the tools to present it properly. So um, it's, a, it's a great all-purpose role. <laughs> <laughs> when you started, was there a lot of females in that pre uh, position of a producer? I don't really know. I mean, I think, I've, I think there were. There, were there weren't a lot. There were some pioneers before me. There were certainly mm -hmm. some producers. I mean, the, the, when I worked in the... Um, on the TV series, that was a there was, that had a woman producer who had worked her way up through the BBC and had been a PA, and then she had worked, you know, become a producer through children's programming, which was a typical place for women to be put. <laughs> um, but she was very good and very sort of skilled, and and she taught me a lot, um, just about the nuts and bolts of the work. And she would just throw me in at the deep end and just tell me to get on with it. And I worked, and again, when I worked at the Edinburgh Film Festival, Linda Miles was the boss there. So, you know, my experience early on was with good, strong women who were in charge. And I worked with Laura Mulvey as a director. Then I worked with Barbara Rennie as a director on two projects. So I worked with women. I worked with Lynn Horsford as a producer on a TV series I did. 
So a lot of the early stuff I did was with other women in charge. And so I, you know, I wasn't a trailblazer. I just, but I, you know, it gave me, certainly gave me the confidence to be my own woman Mm. and be able to be happily in charge of projects. And I've really only encountered any form of sexism in my role as producer on one or two occasions and that's just been the mistake of the poor bloke who's 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 stood on my toes (laughs) you know we had a we had a first assistant director on one film who had to go because they weren't listening to me just had to go most unfortunate because we were stuck without a first AD and then of course the second went as well so we were really buggered but uh didn't matter you know we we had to it, it it's just you just we just didn't put up with it yeah so um <laughs> no, yeah. I've been lucky to work with women bef- who had gone before me and and so it, it it I never questioned the fact that I was a woman in this role although having said that when I first got into film I was sort of wondering what the female, what the roles a woman could do. And I was thinking, well, the hair and makeup or continuity. And I was thinking, God, I'm not very good at continuity. And I would be hopeless at hair and makeup, as you can see. (laughs) And so it was discovering that production existed. That for me was the golden ticket because production suited me down to the ground because I've come from a family of organizers and, and, and I can organize things just happens to be a genetic skill that I have. There's something about um, not being made aware of these other roles that you could maybe have in this industry um, as a general thing that happens, not even, not even in a gendered sense. It just Mm. tends to be that when you talk about the arts, people immediately think, well, it's a, I need to be an actor or I need to be in front of the camera. They never, there's not very much exposure to all the various things that you could be. Because yeah. I found that out as well. Like I did my degree at Glasgow Union Theatre Studies, which was a totally useless piece of academic fluff. And then just kind of made my way by deciding to just do stuff. And it was through doing stuff by that I found out, oh, right, I could be a producer or I could do this other thing. And I think it's very... um it's a shame that we don't present that from like, like right from high school age, when you're talking about people who are interested in media or, or culture and arts, that there are other things they could be other than, I don't know, an actor or a, well, mainly an actor tends to be an actor. <laughs> there's, there's so many jobs in film. There's so many jobs yeah. in film. And uh, interestingly, I'm putting a film together now at the moment. And I just realized that I'd actually, without really realizing it, put several women into heads of department roles. Um, we've got a female designer, casting director, um, and production manager, um, a first AD, uh, and and now it's just it's I don't even I don't think about it. I think about who's I, mean, I never think about it. But it's it's who's best for the job, and it's it's I mean, but I have to say. Back in the early 80s, when Channel 4 was starting, there was a lot more attention to diversity and it was going on. Mm. And something happened. You know, we've had 25 years of, there were 25 years of, of oops, that didn't happen. Mm. Um, I was putting, to, I was working with, um, I was doing, working, working with uh, different 
crew from all sorts of different diverse backgrounds. I was working a lot with women and it somehow it stopped. And I don't know what happened. I think money got in the way mm. and entitlement got in the way. And I think that it sort of ground to some sort of halt during the 90s. And I sort of, and I was happily working away on Ken films and, you know, with Paul Laverty and Ken Loach, and we were working quite happily in our own little bubble, as it were. And I hadn't really noticed that diversity had ground to a halt. And, and as I sort of re-emerged now and I'm working with other directors again more, um, as Ken sort of gradually hangs up his boots, um, I'm, I'm quite amazed at how little progress has been made actually in the last 30, 40 years. And I'm disappointed by that. I really am. And, and I'm, I'm sort of outraged that women are still finding themselves in these positions. Cause I've, I mean, I, you know, certainly haven't had a, I've not had an issue about being a woman doing my job. That's really interesting because we've heard that before, particularly um, uh, from people who who arrived in the industry around about the same same time as yourself, Rebecca. And I think that's really fascinating. I'm wondering. I'm now curious as to what that is. What, what happened? happened there? Um, because yeah, it's not the first time we've heard um, you know people being very cognizant of the fact that it is a it is an issue, and other people have experienced it. But for their particular journey, it wasn't an immediate barrier. Um, and I'm I am wondering what that is about maybe that's an exploration for well, it's, worth, it's worth a bit of research i think mm, yeah research and i think um i think it's i think it's to do with where the money came from and where the money went to mm-hmm. and it's to do with you know channel four when it started had these wonderful ambitions which were gradually subsumed and sort of they ended up being becoming more, you know, the early film fours were so successful. They sort of thought, well, we could be a film studio. And once they sort of took that ambition on, it began to get more pale and male and stale. That's going on a badge, Rebecca. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't invent it. I didn't invent <laughs> okay. it. Okay. Right. Whoever did, we are taking that and putting it on a badge. We will we will credit, but <laughs> pale, male, and stale. We'll send you one. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love it. But uh, I, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's money, mm-hmm. wherever th- that money has come from and gone to. Um, I mean, the problem yeah. is, as the studios got bigger, and inward investment got bigger, as more films got made. Um the the old studio system kicked in and it it's it it became more to do with who you know rather than who's best at it mm. and because also the studios are based in the home counties and they and if and you know a lot of the people who work there have traditionally worked in the studios and a lot of the trades there are very male and very sort of family based and you can sort of understand it but it's interesting because actually some of the towns around the studios near the studios have very powerful ethnic mixes you know Southall is not far from Pinewood 
And, you know, it's just like never the twain shall meet. And I blame the industry for failing to recognize that they could actually have really they missed a trick. You know, they could have really got a lot of uh, skills being developed in and around the towns in that area, you know. And it's still the same old, same old. And you have these people traveling halfway around the M25 because they're a spark and they know another spark who has given them the job. And it's, it's, a, it's a real shame. It's a real waste of, you know, sharing it out amongst everybody. I mean, it could be a much more creative industry. And as it is, I, I, so I think I think the expansion of the film industry also also was the w- w- sort of made it hunker down into some previous thing it never really was. So it's, it's interesting. It's also definitely missing a trick because I, I agree with Elaine. I think so many things you follow back the trail of problems you find out you probably end up back at the money. The trail ends at the money, and and again when when you talk about not having your workforce reflect the world around you and the world in which you live and exist, that's losing money because that's a whole audience there and a whole set of like... Of course, absolutely. And, and you know, hang on a second. I'm living in London, which is a very, very multicultural city. I mean, 40% of Londoners aren't white. And that's a lot of people. And that's a lot of people who can sell their lives and stories and all the rest of it. So it, it just seems to be incredibly blinkered and it's it's like we're serving our Hollywood masters and we are and 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 now what what they're producing in Hollywood is is franchise movies and I mean I know I can be accused of making franchise loach films, but you know, you've got <laughs> They have the a novel. story and a heart and a message though. Yeah. <laughs> so But I but you know there's they're just late to the table and it's it's to the film industry's detriment that that has happened i wonder yeah. if it's also in um like similar to the fact that you don't know about the jobs and it's that kind of like keeping cards close to the chest mm. of not making people aware that these jobs are here and available and 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 the the feeling of jobs being finite yeah Absolutely, so there's Misha. not enough to go around. Absolutely, Misha. I completely agree. I think, I think uh, that there's this sort of exclusivity about the jobs, and um, I mean, there's a there's also a feeling that I mean, I, I just think that that this, you know, despite the skills. Uh, Quangos that have supported the film industry, um, and we every film pays for uh, trainees by through a special levy that te- gets taken off the budget. But but the problem is that money hasn't got gone into the areas where the films want to spend it. So it it there are just there are it's made its own stumbling blocks on the way it's made it more difficult and um there is a problem which is that there is an industry industry there's a film industry industry which sort of supports the film industry (laughs) if you know what i mean there are 
there are there are sort of navel gazing jobs that uh, that are all about the industry, but they're actually not about making films. And I think there's a bit too much of that. Whereas there there could be more work in the independent sector if people just were allowed and, uh, you know, given some entrepreneurial support to get on and do it. And I think that the BFI and the public funders, BBC Films and and Film 4 uh, and Creative Scotland, for instance, they all, they're they're sort of struggling because to to support all the projects that they want to do, because, you know, what happens at the other end is that the studios filter off all all the people that they train up. So there are very few more experienced people staying in that side of the industry. Oh God, I could go on forever. No, it's uh, yeah. We could go on forever as well. So sometimes it ends in a rant. <laughs> so we try yeah, to exactly. veer off before, Quite before we often get there. We end in yeah. a rant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about working with uh, Laura Mulvey, actually, if that's all right. Um, I, when you mentioned Laura, <laughs> when you mentioned Laura, and I just saw Louise's face go, and I was like, oh, she's definitely going to bring it back. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I hope that's okay. Um, that's fine. I mean, it, it was such a long time. Laura's a friend, and uh, it was such a very long time ago that I worked with Laura. I can, I honestly can hardly remember. I was totally thrilled to be working with both Laura and Peter and uh, um, you know they they um, they were sort of being very experimental they were sort of trying things out and it wasn't a, the film that we were making was called Crystal Gazing and we were setting up these tableaus of contemporary life and this was 1981 or 82 I think it was Christmas 81 and uh, I, I'm really sorry, but I can't tell you that much. I mean, I just remember that Laura was, it was, it was quite, they were, you know, Laura and Peter would bicker a bit about what was going to be in the shot. And they were, it wasn't quite clear of where, where the distinction was between who did what. Laura was perhaps more involved in the, in directing the actors, but to be honest, it was quite difficult to tell and it was slightly chaotic. I mean, I do remember, <laughs> you know, the, the theory was better than the practice is what I yes. mean. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to disabuse you. Rosa. No, no, that's fine. That's actually kind of a, an interesting thing to hear because because of the, the theories, um, oh gosh, what's it called? The uh, oh, visual visual desire, visual, visual desire narrative cinema. Is that her? Her, the sort of the theory that she uh, pushed and, and and how women are there to be looked at and how so much film is made through the the, the, the male gaze and how she yes. coined that and I, yeah so it's sort of very it doesn't surprise me that the theory perhaps was for more of the prominent thing well, than actually the delivery. You see, the thing <laughs> is, the thing is, I was very much in awe of Laura and her and her very scary female peers. Um, because I was quite a bit younger than them, and I was, I was, I was completely in awe of them, and didn't understand any of the theory, or didn't wasn't studying the theory. I wasn't studying the theory. I was into practical production. Practical so it was production. sort of like, 
the two things didn't gel for me. It was like yeah. I was doing a job of getting the thing to happen. And that to me wasn't really about the theory. It was about yeah. the thing made. So from a sort of personal standpoint, I was sort of, I'd heard of Laura and I could, I could see that. And, and it was very interesting reading about uh, feminism and cinema. But it was, it was, it was sort of distanced from the job I was actually doing, which was just to get the thing made. And, but it was very funny because the, when I was at Edinburgh at the film festival in my first summer, we had, there was the famous feminism in cinema, um, semi, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, was it the conference was thing? It conference. Yeah, panel yeah, yes. Thing. The conference was going on, and I was doing publicity, and and uh, and wasn't involved in the conference. But I met Laura and Peter then, and they were all talking about it, and and so it was all going on. So that I met all the relevant people, but I but I wasn't attending the conference because I was busy doing publicity and stuff. Anyway, we had. One of the films we had had Nick Nolte, the actor Nick Nolte, in it, and my one of my jobs was to take Nick Nolte down to Radio Fourth to do an interview with the radio, and we got a ride with Robbie Coltrane because Robbie Coltrane was the driver because he had oh. these wonderful American cars. Anyway, so Robbie was the film festival driver, so Robbie drove me and Nick Nolte down to the to Radio Fourth, and so. Nick was there to promote whatever film it was. So he did his sort of spiel for the, for the radio. And I was sat there with him because I was his minder. And, and then the radio, the radio uh, DJ started asking me questions. He said, eh, well, Rebecca, I understand that there's a uh, feminism and film event going on. And I, I said, that was a very good Scottish accent. <laughs> have to jump in. I actually do come from Scotland. I do come. I come from Peebles. So I do. Oh, nice. I can actually. I, I can actually speak Scottish. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I said, uh, Rebecca, what is this? What does uh, feminism mean? <laughs> I, uh, and I said, does it does it mean that that women should dress up nicely for the the men folk? Uh, and, and I said. I don't think that's what the point is. <laughs> and it made me laugh so much that he had us in pink fluffy ball gowns in his mind. He thought that feminism was to do with being more feminine. <laughs> stuff. So that was where I, that was my starting point with feminism and cinema was the radio pink fluffy ball gowns <laughs> asking me about feminism and film. It was brilliant. It was that's brilliant. That is excellent. Oh gosh. But Laura Laura remains a good friend and um you know I think she's extraordinary and I think thanks to Laura you know feminism in film has actually moved on a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From fluffy ball games. Yeah. <laughs> but her generation I mean people like the cinematographer Diane Tams for instance who recently died um, I worked with her. I mean, they were those uh, female DOPs, directors of photography, were certainly forces to be reckoned with. I mean, that's a that's a male job if mm -hmm. ever there was one, or a male job to break into and make it unmale. 
um, a friend of mine, Louise Stoner, who was a camera assistant, told me stories of going to Afghanistan and, and she worked with, a, with three women. They were doing a documentary about Afghan women. This was in the mid eighties. And they went and they were able to hide their cameras and their equipment under their burqas. And they got some extraordinary interviews and things with, with women in Afghanistan, which would never have been possible. So, you know, that was, there was some groundbreaking stuff going on in the early eighties with female cinematographers and great stories. And, but also a lot of prejudice and mm. they, you know, had to prove that they were able to carry gear and they had to prove that they, you know, those were jobs that were much, much harder for women to get into than production because production, it's an obvious thing. Of course, women can multitask because that's what we're supposed to be able to do. Um, and so actually now are probably more women in production and production management now than, than men because of that. Mm. Although there's still a lot of men in the top jobs. Mm. Yeah. 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 That's something I've often thought because I think, because uh, uh, I work as a producer in theatre uh, here in Scotland as well. And um, often as I've moved through my career, I've found women in, in senior roles. But then when you get to the very tippy top, CEOs, directors of buildings, then then it's the men. So it's like the women are doing most of the organisation, like you say, and balancing the budgets and making the difficult decisions. Yeah. But then answering not at the Travis, not at the Travis Theatre, which I'm a board member of at the moment. Well, yes, that's true. Traverse has been has been very, yeah, consistent actually yeah. where that's concerned, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Please yeah. say that, but yes, I think it, it is still the norm. It's still the norm that those. The, the big dogs are dogs and not bitches. <laughs> Another badge. <laughs> <laughs> That's me. That's <laughs> you. You can get credit for that. Yeah. Me, some top bitches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm now trying to think about our badge and it's logo, bitches, not dogs. Uh, <laughs> I'm a top bitch. <laughs> I'm a top bitch. That you are. That you are, my friend. <laughs> um, I really wanted to ask a couple of questions about working with Ken, and obviously his films are, they have such messages and political messages behind them. Um, that Really, I just want to know a little bit more about what that's like when you're in that, working on that, because, I mean... I'm going to be honest, I started watching Daniel Blake, I, Daniel Blake, and had to stop because I was going to uh, go outside and set fire to everything. I was so <laughs> fucking angry. Um, just uh, rage-inducing. And uh, But the stories need told, and I, and I love I love that, and it, they are vital. Um, so I just think, yeah, I just wanted to ask about that. Well, the first thing I should say about that is that um, they're not just Ken, they're also Paul Laverty. Yes. Paul Laverty is the writer and actually many of the ideas come from Paul. But the three of us work as a sort of uh, tripod <laughs> of, um, uh, you know, we, we, we sort of work together, the three of us, uh, and in developing the ideas. I mean, the ideas largely come from Paul and... What we do is, what, what, what has happened over the years is that we usually, uh, the next film emerges 
after over a dinner we the three of us will get together and 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 have a have a have a dinner together sometimes on the previous film or the film before that and we'll discuss what the you know the burning issues of our time might be and it's that it's the burning issues of our time and Ken and Paul particularly are exchange notes all the time and they they're they're they are both incredibly political and they and they're always bemoaning what's going on and 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 they include me in their in their moans and complaints and and they alight you know they alight on whatever is the story is the thing that could be the story that you you would tell and and it's at those dinners that maybe two or three ideas will come up and then something will bubble up to the surface yeah and that's the case with all of the films. It's like, what do we want to tackle? What is a subject that's big enough to sustain our interest for at least two years and will be worth telling the story of when we come out the other side? And I, you know, you, there's always the fear, something like I, Daniel Blake. I mean, it was current when we started it in 2015 and 2014, really, when the idea came to the surface. But what was extraordinary was it was still on the agenda when the film was released. In fact, it, it, it was released at the perfect time and it became, you know, that was the thing, that was one of the things behind the film's success, which was that it hit the zeitgeist. It sort of peaked, that issue peaked at exactly the time that the film came out. Mm. So, in fact, what happened was that the film, the film was talked about in Parliament. It it just was the right film, the right place, and the right time. And we, it, it was it was that that feeling of, you know, sometimes you get everything sort of right, and we did with that film in in the UK. And you know, we you, you make enough films, the chances are you'll get one right in the end. <laughs> no, but but I mean, it's fantastic. It's been fantastic to work with. It's, burning p- political minds like Ken's and Paul's and to be able to facilitate them in getting their stories across. I mean, I don't take the um, credit for the ideas, but I t- certainly take a, a supporting role credit in getting that those, you know, helping them get those ideas across and getting those finding ways in in which to tell the story because what will happen is like there's an idea there's a political subject that's looked at and Paul will you know we decide on something and then Paul will allow a character to form who can tell that story who can be the, the mouthpiece for that story and allow it to uh come to the fore and then he'll go off and research the background of that story and and then characters will form and different arguments will form and those arguments become the central drama of the thing and gradually they you know during the course of his research they coagulate and they begin to tell a story and so that's how it comes to be and then Ken will work with Paul on the script I mean Paul will will Paul will come up first with a document that maybe a 10 page document, which is a sort of not really a treatment, but it's a sort of a, a sort of stream of consciousness ideas about where the plot lines could go, what characters there might be. 
and then Ken will work with Paul on that and then we all chip in and then and then Paul will just sit down and write a draft and then Ken will work with Paul on that. I won't read the first draft. It'll, it'll, it'll go backwards and forwards a couple of times between Ken and Paul until they feel that there's something that they want the first audience for, which is the point that they show it to me. And then I might make three or four points. I might say, well, and they would be very general points. I'm not going to get dug into the nitty gritty of the detail because I trust that Ken and Paul will do that. But I might, might make sort of overall points about characters or, or balance, the balance of where things happen and when things happen and, you know, what is out of, you know, what would be too big for our scale of film. Or, so it's a sort of controlling interest, really. And then I've got to I've got to believe in it enough to be one, wanting to sell it. And it's funny because there was one film that we did which I didn't have my heart and soul in, and it was the least successful of the films mm. because I found it very difficult to really believe it as a story. I thought it was strong, but it was just too gloomy and severe. And I think it wasn't, well, you know, you, some, some, there are hit and misses, but I mean, yeah. I've, I've loved them all for one reason or another. It's a really um, collaborative way of working. It's really uh, mm. lovely to hear that that's how it, you, the three of you work together as well. And like that thing that you said about you're the first audience for everything, I really love that idea that as you said, you know, you're selling it, so you are the first audience for every yeah. part of it. Yeah, it's a great it's a it's a great role to play, really. Mm. Overall, yeah. It also, so, um, sorry, Lynn. No, go for it, Dylan. No, I was just going to make a, a point. Uh, returning to your earlier point about finding people that you trust and you love working with, and how important that is, because uh, we speak we speak so often in our industry about encouraging people to make their own work, and I think probably a key way of doing that is is to find that that perfect working relationship and make things that you're passionate about. Don't make things that you think, you know, just because they'll sell or because somebody else might be interested in it, make it for, for your passion and your belief in the project. And I think that's, it's think great. That's nice. It's great. But sometimes it's great also to make something just for fun. I mean, I'm working on a, mm. a French thriller at the moment, a remake of a French thriller, which we're, we're, we're doing in an English version of it in, set in the Highlands. It's, it's just great fun to work on something which is purely uh, exploitative cinema. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thriller. It's a remake of something which already exists. And it's, it's just a great opportunity to do something which... I don't have to worry about how the politics is going to be coming across too much. I can just get on and do plain, unadulterated film production. And I'm having such a fun time working uh, on it with the director, with the team. And, and, you know, it doesn't all have to be worthy or, you know, it needs to be fun. And mm, I mean, that's yeah. what I would say about working with Paul and Ken is we have a lot of laughs. We do have, a good time. I mean, Ken has a has a wicked sense of humour. Maybe a little bit too schoolboy for my liking. <laughs> um, and Paul uh, is very funny as well. And so the three of us laugh a lot, and the laugh a lot at each other. That's very important. <laughs> they take the piss out of me unrelentingly, 
And so I take the piss out of them. And it I is good fun. I was going to say, Rebecca, I kind of think you give as good as you get. I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, she does. She does. <laughs> so this project that's in the Highlands, is this the one that you were talking about with your kind of female director, female... Um, no, this assistant? is... Uh, no, that's... I'm developing a project with a, with a woman director and a woman writer, uh, writer-producer at the moment, which is... a. a probably a year or two down the line. Um, no, the one I'm doing, is, is a, it's got a French director who's a man and who has who directed the original. Ah, uh, okay. Great. But um, it's, it, I, I, it's that's, that's actually got, a, that's got quite a lot of women working on it. It's about half and half at the moment, which is good. Excellent. That's what we uh, like. The, the first AD is a woman and I always like that. And, um, uh, Two out of four of the producers are women, and um, myself included. And yeah, it's, it's coming together as a as a good mixture. That's great. I think half and half is like all that anybody really wants. It's like you know, right, it? yeah, it's like yeah, every because it's not saying that the male's opinions aren't required because <laughs> they are. It's nice <laughs> 50-50 is definitely the goal, isn't it? Yeah, 50 is definitely the goal. Yeah. Um, I'm aware of our time um, and like could continue talking to you forever, um, but we do ask a question. Um, so literally everybody... It's not a scary one, don't worry. It's, it's not, not, it's not something you needed to revise for. The podcast is going to be sick to death of me explaining this, but I will explain it. So the reason why we are called Persistent and Nasty is we took the quote, nevertheless, she persisted um, about Elizabeth Warren. And the nasty is because when Trump called Hillary a nasty woman in the 2016 campaign, um, he's done it again just the last couple of days and he called uh, Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris, yeah. Harris uh, a nasty woman so he um he's back to his old tricks so we are reclaiming the words so we like to reclaim words like coven and bitch and witch and bossy all of those words that are used against us so we like to ask people what does persistent and nasty mean to you um persistent and nasty means to me um it just means to me here's somebody who can jolly well get everything done and uh and will not take any prisoners on the way (laughs) you know uh, persistent Call it assertive and then nasty, call it, call it assertive, you know, just call it assertive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Bitches, not dogs. Dogs. That's the thing. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. I know. Rebecca, thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy to chat to you today. And we Well, it's been a great pleasure to to to, to sit down and have a chat with you three persistent nasty bitches yay yay <laughs> it's really nice to meet you all it's lovely to meet you and lovely thank to meet you i hope i'll meet you up in scotland at some oh point. yeah 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 Absolutely. we can have a drink let's hope so soon okay. yeah <laughs> i love how i'm always like oh we'll go for a drink <laughs> yeah we'll go for a drink we will yeah. thanks everyone for listening and oh we're doing it stay, stay nasty, nasty. <laughs> 
I just thought I'd surprise you. <laughs> Me again, just a couple of things. We would really love it if you would sign up to our newsletter. We have got some really interesting stuff coming up. We don't send them out very often, but when we do, it's usually something really important that we want to share with you. You can do that by going to our website, Facebook, etc. And if you're really struggling, even just send us a wee email. Guys, we'd really love to ask a wee favour of you all. Um, as most of you know, and if you don't, you're going to find out now, we are not funded and we do everything that we can to keep um, Persistent and Nasty going and the podcast going and all the kind of um, work that we do behind the scenes um, in our advocacy work and activism work. So saying all that, we would be extraordinarily grateful if you guys wouldn't mind donating us the price of a coffee maybe once a month or something and we understand that times are tight money is tight and if you can't do that we totally get it so if you wouldn't mind liking subscribing and sharing the podcast commenting it really does make a huge difference to us and for those of you who can um we would be super grateful and if you we will link our PayPal uh, details into um, the description in this episode. Uh, thank you. We really are amazed and overwhelmed by our community and we are over 10,000 um, listeners and we are humbled, actually, that you, you, you like to hear our chat. Thank you for everything. And as always... Stay nasty, beautiful people. <laughs>